If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is John Goldschmidt. Hello, John. Hi there. Uh, we've come together to talk about your, your feature film, Doe, which you directed and produced. Um, for, before we go into any details about it, do you want to give uh, the audience a brief synopsis to what Doe's about? Well, Doe is about uh, um, the two most unlikely um, pals. It's a kind of buddy movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about an old white guy and a young black guy. It's about uh, um, a Jew and about a, uh, um, a black guy. It's you know who's a Muslim. So it's. Um, I'll, I'll, let me just say all of that again, if I may. Yeah, go. On. Uh, it's a film about the most unlikely friends. It's about an old guy and a young guy. It's mm -hmm. about a white guy and a black guy. It's about a Jew and a Muslim yeah. who don't like one another to start off with, but because they both have enemies, they try to help one another because they're decent people, and in the end they become buddies. So it's a buddy movie uh, which is set in contemporary London uh, and deals with prejudice and cannabis. Cannabis, because the boy's been selling cannabis because they're asylum seekers from Darfur and have no money. And by mistake, the cannabis gets into the bread in the bakery where he's working. This is all set in a, largely in a bakery. And the bakery stops doing badly and starts to do incredibly well. But nobody really knows why. I think, that, I think that captures it. I think that captures it. And, and right now, people can watch that film. I mean, I, I, I'm in the UK and I saw that on Netflix. I can see, you can see it on Netflix now. So how else can people listening see, see the movie? Yeah, I mean, um, you need to type in the word dough, like bread or money, dough, uh, in search in Netflix, and it'll come up. I mean, it's on Netflix in the States and on Hulu in the States. Here, I think it's also on Sky Movies. But I don't, I, I don't really, I haven't looked it up on Sky. I know that it's on Netflix. And that's incredibly useful because a lot of people don't see the film when it's in the cinema mm. and say, well, where can I see it? And rather than have to give them a download link and that's all to do with piracy and problems, um, you just say, well, look at it on Netflix. And it's been very successful on Netflix. Which I'm not 
publish their, their numbers, but I just get feedback that it's, 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 it's really done well. You know, a comedic drama, a feel-good film, a very British film. Uh, so for, for, for people in England, or Britain really, uh, United, uh, United Kingdom, uh, this United Kingdom, um, uh, getting access to things on Netflix is really handy. No, indeed, indeed. Now, now you're the director of the film and also a producer on it, but in terms of conceiving this idea, um, at what stage did you get involved with the uh, with the writers of the film, or did you indeed engage the writers to to, to pull this together? Well, I, um, I'll tell you the background. Basically, um, I don't really want unsolicited scripts, but I'm very interested in new young writers. Okay. And this guy, Jez Friedman, um, came to see me. Uh, I mean, he's Orthodox Jewish, uh, I'm an atheist, he's disabled, I'm relatively healthy, um, he lived in North London, I live in North London, and he, he came to see me and wanted to read scripts for me, and I said, look, what's the point of me paying you £50 a script? What I need is a really good idea. What I'm looking for is something that deals with a social issue in the way that little Miss Sunshine did, or Goodbye Lenin did, using humour uh, in a contemporary situation that has something to say about the state of the world. So why don't you go away and come back with an idea that um, fits that sort of uh, um, that brief. Uh, and six months later, he came back and he said, my school friend, uh, Jonathan, he's got an idea about a, a baker, a Jewish baker. Um, and this uh, young um, uh, guy who's come to work for him, and he's been, you know, dealing in cannabis, and the cannabis gets in the bread. So I said, well, that's a really good idea. Mm. Why don't you write five pages? So he wrote five pages. I thought, well, that's terrific. But, you know, you should expand it and make it 15 pages. So he wrote 15 pages, and I said, oh, yes, well, I'll option the 15 pages, and I'll commission the script. I'm not going to pay you a lot of money because you've never had anything produced ever, mm. and then you don't have a lot of money. But you can turn the 15 pages into 20 pages, into 100 pages. And so we discussed what the, you know, the Jewish thing wasn't a problem because, uh, you know, Jews are always disagreeing with one another. Um, <laughs> uh, the the, the 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 tricky thing was really to make the boy a Muslim, yeah, and the mother, you know, who, who was the cleaning lady in the in the in the bakery, uh, a Muslim, because that's rather controversial. And the idea was to build bridges, not offend anyone. Yeah. So I tried to work out whether this this the mother and son should be from Iran or should be from. Uh, you know, Palestine or should be from Pakistan. And of course, we wanted them to be, um, totally, you know, to, in, in the end, you see, they, they end up having a role to play in, in, in this bakery, in this shop. Mm. And we didn't want it to look like, you know, every other corner shop run by a Pakistani. And I also wanted to avoid, um, the whole prejudice thing. In terms of the audience, I wanted the film to appeal to Muslims as well. So I chose Darfur because those people are so sort of noble, so sort of elegant looking, and their cause, you know, they're being um, massacred by um, Arab uh, um, uh, men on horseback with guns. Yeah. So this was one Muslim lot uh, um, ethnically cleansing another. Yeah. So it was a sort of... <clears throat> Uh, we felt safe with that terrain. So anyhow, we commissioned the script, 
and we did, you know, mini drafts, mini drafts. So, you know, and I'd show it to some friends and some other people, you know, so I'm surrounded by people in the film industry. And we'd think, oh, this is a good point. We'll improve this and we'll improve that. So after about a year, we had a screenplay that I thought was worth showing to people. What would, what would you say was the, was the bit, I mean, there's a lot to tackle there, you know, at the very heart of it, making it a kind of light-hearted, feel-good comedy and combining, <laughs> you know, the, the cultural differences between, between Jewish and Muslims while not trying to make, you know, trying to get too, um, not trying to be too light on those subjects, but also you, you obviously didn't want to go too serious on it. So what were, what were the big storytelling challenges for you when you were developing the script with, the, with uh, Jez? Well, the, the the biggest problem really was finding the right Muslim background for mm. the mother and son, okay. and how to deal with the with the prejudice uh, between you know the old Jewish Orthodox baker and the young um, uh, religious Muslim, uh, and how to show their prejudices and dislike for one another. Because they're having to economically collaborate, he's having to work in the bakery. The Jew doesn't want him in the bakery, and to somehow work out how they could become sympathetic towards one another, and how they could, and how the baker could then discover that this this guy has criminally put um, cannabis into his bread. Uh, so you, you have this huge bust up when he feels betrayed having been a sort of father figure to him. It's really about a boy who doesn't have a father and a father who doesn't like, who is unhappy about his own son. So it becomes a father son story really. Mm. Uh, and, uh, that's a kind of classic, um, f uh, format, uh, in terms of, you know, stories and drama. Um, but I, I also knew from the beginning that Getting a film fully financed in the UK yeah. is always very difficult, and this this story had the great advantage that you could set half of the film inside the bakery, and so I knew immediately that if we could set half of it inside the bakery, which was logical given the nature of the story, then it was a transportable film. It meant that you could shoot the interior of the bakery in a studio in Berlin, in Toronto, uh, you know, in in Budapest somewhere, mm. and that would make it easier to um, get partners to finance the film because a lot of subsidies, a lot of finance is kind of uh, studio friendly. Yeah. In the end, um, that's how we got the film financed. I mean, I come from a European kind of background, and I've done a, I pioneered co-productions between Channel Four, uh, the BBC, Granada, and various. Uh, TV stations in Europe making single movies always. Mm. Uh, so I had a lot of experience in all of that, and I had quite a good name on the continent. Um, so in the end, I decided Budapest was the best place to shoot the film. And uh, I initially started talking to Porter Film Studios. They talked about putting up 30%, and I was supposed to have 50% from England. But then uh, the guys working there were hired by a software tycoon, and they just said, look, we could 100% finance this film for you. Wow. You know, shoot it in Budapest, not a quarter that's out of town. We'll have a better studio closer into the center of Budapest. And why don't you just make the film? We like you. We like the story. 
we want it. We want a film like this to be shot in Budapest. And I said, yeah, but it has to be totally English. It has to have, you know, be totally credible to anybody in London. It can't look as if anything's filmed anywhere else. No, no, no. You can have your heads of departments. So I had all the heads of departments apart from makeup as British. And we shot what was in the end 60% of the film in Budapest in a studio-like situation. Mm. Which, of course, meant that I did the exteriors in London first, which is what you're always supposed to do, and then shoot the interiors. But it meant that because the film, I had the schedule that I wanted. I wanted to shoot five days a week, uh, and I needed seven and a half weeks to shoot the film. I made the film on schedule, uh, under budget, because I had fought hard to have the schedule and the budget I needed. And on that basis, it wasn't a question of using every penny in the contingency because you have, because you're, you know, in trouble. It meant I could calmly make the film. And of course, having somebody like Jonathan Price, which was, um, the big, uh, plus in the film to get a great British theatre actor who had been, uh, you know, a character actor in movies playing key supporting roles, but who hadn't played a leading role for a very long time, to have him in the film meant that it, it created a, a kind of high standard for all the other actors. When you approach people and you said, well, you would be acting with Jonathan Price, the, their faces lit up because that was extremely attractive to English actors. So the big other challenge was to cast this young uh, kind of 18-year-old black boy mm. Um, although in America there are lots of 18-year-olds who are stars, in Britain there are no stars that are 18 years old. So I had to make a list of 30 actors. We screen-tested six of them. I did this together with Jonathan Price so that I could see the chemistry between the, the two actors. Yeah. And it became clear that this one boy, uh, who had never been in, any, in anything before, uh, was the best. So I had to persuade the financiers go with Jonathan Price, uh, not necessarily a kind of hot bankable actor, and go with this kid who's never been in a film before, because that is the chemistry that I need, and that is what's going to deliver uh, emotionally on the screen. And they went, they supported me, and that's what I was able to do. So Jerome Holder um, is was a real discovery. I was a bit worried that, you know, uh, I wanted to shoot the film Anamorphic, but I decided against that because if you've got a first time actor and he's not exactly in the right place at the right time, he could be out of focus because those lenses are so critical with focus. Okay. As he was perfect. I could have shot it anamorphic, but I didn't want to take the risk with a first time actor. Now, with, with the, I mean, I always, it's one thing I look, I'm, I think I'm still sort of child about films sometimes when I, you, you get, you get to look behind the curtain and you go, exteriors are in London, but none of the interiors were ever in, ever in London, even though when you watch the film, you don't feel like you've left the East End. Um, I love, I love that discovery about films. I, I think the first time I, first interview I ever did was, a, was a, was with a, guy, a director called uh, Barnaby Southcombe about his film Ayanna, and it was all shot around the Barbican. And then he went, but none, all the interiors were shot in Berlin, and I was like, that, it just, it just always, it still blows my mind, no matter how much I know it happened. I still find it fascinating that, that a film can straddle two places, yet when you watch it, you don't feel like you've moved more than a few feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why I insisted on having, you know, uh, 
the production designer John Bunker, mm. a frock buyer from London, the DOP Peter Hammond from London, um, he did Whitnell and I and lots of other films. I just wanted everybody to make sure that every little detail, the you know the light switch, uh, the the you know the door handle, everything needed to be convincing as being from in London, because uh, I see films obviously um, that have been have done this shot in a studio somewhere. They're supposed to be London, and I know looking at it, it's not London. Mm. And they have a, you know, but um, I was determined that um, it would be totally convincing, and it is totally convincing. Uh, that's the response we've had in, in London as well. So, I mean, one of the things, for example, I had to do. I mean, there are artistic things to talk about, uh, but the practicalities of making a film are also important. Yeah. I needed to find a Jewish bakery um, that would be the model for this set. And um, the, it was a sort of Jewish holiday period coming up, and no Jewish bakery would allow me to film there. But I found the perfect place, which I photographed. Mm. And I said to the guys in Budapest, here's the place, copy, build this place for me in the studio. But we had to shoot the exterior uh, in, in South London. Uh, and um, so we had to find a parade of shops that could be seen as one one property that somebody could own, in the middle of which was this bakery. So we had to establish that exterior in a real place in London and then shoot the interiors in Budapest. So you had to look through the, the glass window of the shop, in and out of the shop, and so we put a, um, a, a British post box, a red post box on the pavement in London and had the same thing outside the, 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 the studio set on the pavement in Budapest. Right. And then to prove that this was really um, not a studio, I had this cement mixer drive down the front of the shop in the studio, um, which, of course, you know, I just wanted to, I thought, what's the biggest vehicle we can get in here to drive past the window at the beginning of the film that the set is totally convincing as being in London, having you know, showing also the exterior in London. So we've got a few tricks like that, because I didn't want to do it with green screen, because that just creates an artificial environment for the actors. I wanted them to be able to walk in and out and do whatever they want to do, as agreed with me, um, and not be limited with some sort of technical obsessions with that's a really, that's a really interesting technique you've done there, with, the, with just, just by using something like a cement truck. I was, I was watching... Um What's it? Joel Schumacher's eight um, millimeter with the commentary the other day, and he talks about a bar scene, which obviously would would have, would have been a studio scene. And there's there's police there's a police calf police like fashion out the window, and there's there's obviously been an accident, so there's flames going, which is nothing to do with the scene, but it but it it helps give the feeling of authenticity that you're not in a studio. You you believe that this yeah. scene is happening in a real bar, and yeah. so it's yeah. all artifice. I like it's it's interesting that kind of. The, the, the tricks of the the tricks of the trade, as it were, to make to give give the sense of authenticity when obviously it's it's a, it's an empty shell with lights that are made your artificial lighting. Absolutely. I mean, what I like to do is I like to this is what I've always done is have a read through. In other words, you get the whole cast around a big table on all the heads of department, and then like with a radio a drama everybody reads the script and the assistant director reads the stage directions. Mm -hmm. Then I have two or three days rehearsals because the writer is there and when you see it played out, 
between the principal characters, you just think, well, we could polish this, or an actor says this or that, and then you can sort of take advantage of this creative brainstorming two or three days to polish everything. And one of the things we needed is we got a lady from Darfur, who was uh, obviously uh, living in London, mm-hmm. into the into the rehearsals, um, because she explained to us that in Darfur, um, Muslim uh, uh, beha- behavior is different than in some other African countries. Okay. So you come in the door, you say something, and when you do this and that. So uh, we had, uh, and also I needed to get this young guy, Jerome, to have uh, um, a, an accent, um, an African accent, but not too strong because the Americans wouldn't watch something that was too foreign. Mm-hmm. So we him to have a kind of African flavor, and we had, I had this lady from Darfur, and he just listened to her. I did think about having a, um, a dialogue coach, but then it gets in his brain, it kind of, you get too technical. I thought, I'll just, this, you know, this is not an experienced actor, I'll just let him listen to this woman from Darfur and acquire this kind of African, uh, so Darfurian accents. Uh, which, of course, his mother, Natasha Gordon, also had to do. Now, of course, Natasha Gordon, after this, wrote her first stage play, which is on at the National now, which has been a huge success. It's called Nine Nights. It's about a Jamaican uh, uh, um, family uh, getting together when the matriarchal uh, figure died and is is dead in the bedroom above, and they spend nine days together um, before the funeral and her plays about that. Anyway, Natasha, who is not really a film actress, more a theatre actress, played Jerome's mother. And she also, she had the problem if she came from a Jamaican family background and I had to watch that she didn't slip into a Jamaican accent. She had to retain that Darfur accent that Jerome had and all that worked okay. But um, that's why the sound recorders is obviously terribly important because he's hearing everything and um, can always point out some, you know, some uh, variations on things like that. From from a director's point of view, just um, for the for the layperson listening, what what is what are the challenges when you're working with someone who's maybe more more au fait with theatre based acting as opposed to on screen acting? What are you what are you aware of? You you you're trying to avoid, or what are you trying to make happen that that maybe isn't well, natural to a theatre actor? Well, the thing about um, Jonathan Price mm. is that he is one of the the great actors of all time, mm. um, and primarily a theatre actor, but he's done so many films as well mm-hmm. that you didn't really have to say much to him. When I mean, the camera is very intimate, uh, and therefore um, you're very close to the actors, so they mustn't overact. Mm. But I don't think, you know, with Jonathan, there was ever an issue like that. Uh, what he did do is he really helped Jerome relax um, and he would wind him up a little bit because he was a great, you know, practical joke teller. Oh, and really? he'd have Jerome's in stitches. And then I said, we've got to shoot this now. And I'd say action. And of course, Jonathan can switch from mucking around to being in character instantly. Mm. Still rolling about, laughing from the last joke, not quite ready to. (laughs) (laughs) But apart from that, you know, these were happy kind of uh, issues to deal with because everybody got on so well. 
How, how do you, I mean, I'll just taking someone like Jonathan Price, who's obviously got a, got a, a huge career, I mean, you, yourself, you have as well, but, but coming to an actor like Jonathan, it's like, how, how much are you having to direct him, or how much are you going, I've cast Jonathan Price, it'll be fine? Well, I think, um, in a way, um, self-conscious acting is dangerous. Mm-hmm. What you want is to have... Uh, people being totally natural the thing is when you're shooting a film mm-hmm. the clock is ticking there's so many issues to deal with in a way one should have sorted all of that out in rehearsals so in you know the guys just uh, doing what you rehearsed you've you're obviously covering it with i shoot with i shot this with two cameras and if there was a fire or something like that i'd have a third camera because you can't repeat that but um you you're, you you shouldn't have to discuss the meaning of life with actors on the film set when mm-hmm. the clock is ticking. It should all have been done beforehand because preparation is everything. Right. Uh, making a film is just such a tough undertaking um, that you really don't have time to to kind of philosophically sit around discussing things for hours on end. You need to get the thing in the can. But you need to get the performances right, and you just need to have the right actors that you've rehearsed with, that you've discussed everything with, so you can then just fine-tune things rather than deal with any big challenges. I thought, um, in terms of the, the, the sort of big issues, you know, the, the idea of uh, Judaism and, and, and Islam, Islamism and, and, and the cultural difference between those two, and also being in... Being in uh, Britain as well, so you've got the kind of the other, the kind of third wheel, third spoke, I suppose, in the in, in the potential prejudice stakes into in, in the film. I thought it was really interesting the way that the um, it was handled in the dialogue because it, 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 there there is there is elements of prejudice with all the with a lot of the characters between each other, but but not in a way that is. Um, and it's going to sound stupid because it's not it's not to make light of prejudice, but it's like it appeared more like learned behaviour than it seemed like evil, vile behaviour. It's almost like that's how they talk, and then as the film shows, as they get to know each other as people, obviously that prejudice di- dissipates. Which I know is a simplistic way of seeing it, but I thought it it, ca- it carried that off really well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was one of my main concerns. Obviously, I showed uh, Jewish prejudice against this Muslim boy in the, the synagogue and various places. Um, and, but I had to, I was really um, cautious. Of course, you know, there, um, uh, te- terrorism or um, fundamentalism on a, on a Muslim uh, in, in Muslim communities is a terribly hot issue politically mm. in the UK. Yeah. Um, one could have been sensationalistic about it. One could have kind of made the whole thing uh, um, much more provocative. But it wasn't that type of film. I tried to make a feel-good buddy movie mm. that still showed prejudice and how it was overcome. Mm. And the thing that really um, was very topical in America was the whole cannabis angle, because in various American states, cannabis has been legalized. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this, of course, you know, is uh, uh, it's not legal in the UK. Um, so I had this stoned Jewish family with a little girl uh, eating this challah bread that is that has got cannabis in it, and they're all getting stoned. 
that was a slight concern. Would anybody object to that? I mean, it's intentional. Um, that, the, uh, but you know, um, uh, that was part of the comedy, part of the feel good. You can't be puritanical about these things. Of course. And um, what, what I really wanted to do was to move the audience, because when the film was first shown to an audience that was in da- in um, uh, um, in France and the Dinar Film Festival. All right. And um, for some, you know, the film the distributor in France and he got the film into the Dinar Film Festival, which is a festival of British films. And I arrived there with this young black actor. And um, the film was this two or three cinemas in the town, and we're trying to walk, not knowing the town, to find this particular cinema. And as we're walking down the street, uh, a, a French couple stopped us. They'd seen the film. They wanted to be photographed with Jerome. And then I looked up because there were people applauding at a balcony in a flat above, and they were applauding Jerome. So ah. then, then we got to the outside of the cinema, and there was a big queue. <coughs> Um, because we got there 15 minutes early, not expecting the, you know, the, 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 every, seat, every seat was taken and, and 50 people were being turned away outside. So when we were in the cinema and the film was shown, there was a standing ovation at the end of the film. Um, and I just realized um, this film works with audiences. Mm. So you don't really know. I mean, of course, I've made a lot of films, particularly primetime films on ITV and the BBC, single films yeah. that always got into the top 20 and often into the top 10 ratings wise. Mm. So I'm used to, you know, communicating with an audience. And this was the first proof that the film really this is a French speaking audience watching the film with subtitles. But, of course, you know, the whole question of Muslims in France is a big issue. Of course, yeah. Uh, So this film really um, resonated with that first audience. And then that's what I witnessed in America, because the the distributor in America used all these different film festivals who would pay for Jerome and me to fly there. So we went to, I don't know, 10 different cities. We went with the first screening was in Atlanta. Yeah. A surprising place. Then we were in Philadelphia, in San Francisco, in Boston, in New Jersey, in uh, uh, Palm Beach. We, of course, the, the distributor was very smart because he got all these film festivals um, to pay for the, you know, us to go around America and talk about the film and get a sort of Facebook momentum going where it was getting like, you know, 50,000, 100,000 clicks on Facebook um, without him having spent very much money. So he delayed the opening of the film in America to get them, as more and more film festivals wanted to invite us to attend and show the film, uh, it was um, a certain kind of momentum gathered of its own accord, uh, which is not something, you know, that didn't happen in England. This was a British film, uh, independently financed British film, um, uh, without any big distribution money behind it. But somehow it was the right film at the right time in the States because the people who didn't like Trump loved the film. So this was during the the run-up to the presidential election. And people, word of mouth, um, uh, you know, uh, that sort of anti the reaction to Trump really helped the film 
uh, with audiences. So did he, did he get any theatrical release in, in the UK at all? Yes, Vertigo released it okay. uh, nine months later. And they released, they did a much better poster here than the poster in America. Uh-huh. But, and they also did a terrific thing on the, on, on the internet with uh, uh, Facebook and, you know, and so on. But uh, they didn't really, the problem was that Jonathan Price was shooting Don Quixote in Spain. And the minute that he wasn't available to give interviews, they didn't bother sending any journalists to Spain. Whereas in America, they did the interviews with Jonathan Price on, in, on, on Skype and with various people. And we had um, Hollywood Reporter do an article. We had um, uh, New York Magazine. We had the New York Times. We, you know, had a lot of momentum, some of it based on interviews with Jonathan, but also partly because I was with Jerome in America a lot. So there was a real buzz about it. But in the UK, was, uh, to my disappointment, the film was only in the cinemas for, I don't know, four weeks. Um, but now it's on Netflix. Uh, and you really have to spend a lot of effort or money um, to get the attention of an audience. And um, that worked in America. And for a British film, you know, most British films don't get released in America. I always knew that this film would do well in America if we can only get it out there. So, so, so you enjoyed, you, you, you were saying, I mean, before we start recording, you were saying, so it enjoyed almost like a life of six months on, on the big screen in America. Is that right? Is that what you were yeah, it was in 70 cinemas for six months. Wow. In America. It started off with, I don't know, four or five cinemas, mm. and it went to 70 within uh, two or three months. And was, was that, that, that kind of, I mean, obviously inviting you out was with you and, and Jerome, out to do the sort of Q and A's and be present at the screenings at some of the festivals was a, was was obviously a shrewd idea. But but was that was that part of, of a strategy that meant this is how we might be able to circumvent the inability to spend big on marketing, but actually create a buzz? Or was the buzz something that happened and and it was exploited as a as a thing to get it seen in the cinema? Well, what the, this was a very small American distributor mm-hmm. um, who um, said. We don't want to open this film in New York or Los Angeles. It's too expensive. It's dangerous. What we want is bums on seats. We want to prove to cinema owners that the audience love this film. So let's start it in Florida and in Atlanta and in uh, Philadelphia. Let's do New York and Los Angeles later when we've proven that that this is a film that, you know, we want to have cinemas that are full rather than, you know, huge cinemas that are half empty. So the strategy was, let's make, you know, we want to show it in small cinemas where people are queuing up to get in, make it very desirable uh, and not overexpose it. Of course, I had offers once the film started to work from bigger distributors um, to put real, real money behind it. But the small distributor whose biggest success this film turned out to be mm. wasn't going to hand it over to some other bigger company, um, um, who were obviously going to put five, six, seven, eight million dollars behind the promotion of the film, which would have made it a much bigger success for me. He wouldn't do that because he wanted his, his moment of glory, having very cunningly got the film 
to turn into a success. It really books a trend, doesn't it? Because we, you know we, we're led to believe, you know, certainly with, with, with some with, with big releases and experiment and and sort of day and date releases and and big, you know, and everything's about opening weekend with a film, and then you know it's sort of everything, everything's a supernova. Whereas what this strategy has proven, maybe for, for independent filmmakers listening in, is is that you can there is a, there is potential to grow films awareness organically rather than the the, 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 stu, the the stupidly hard challenge of letting everybody know that your film's going to be available on Friday where you live, which is obviously a big ask even to get it even get it to that point where you can even make that statement. So the the confidence of of going let's start here, let's make it an event. Uh, rather than a release, almost, if that makes sense. No, no, I know, but the thing is that um, I wanted the film, and I have three other scripts being completed. I want these films to be theatrical films. Of mm. course, you can make them for Netflix, and it's much that makes life a lot easier. But um, I wanted to prove that you can make a small independent film successful in American cinemas. Uh, by nurturing it. It's what they did with Woody Allen's early films. Mm. That's what, what happened with Four Weddings and a Funeral. Nobody believed in the film, but somehow the audiences connected with it and it gathered momentum. The trouble is that um, everything is controlled by fewer and fewer companies. And the theory is if you don't have one of those companies behind you, you have no chance whatsoever. Because mm. At least a film costs more than to make a film. Um, but I managed to, I think we disproved that um, with a British film, with a theatre actor, with a first-time black kid from London that nobody had ever seen before, mm. that could touch people emotionally, that word of mouth could spread. Would have been better to have had um, proper P&A financing in America, but the financier who financed the film um, you know, I suddenly had the money to make the film and I was producing it and I had to set up a British company. We had to set up a Hungarian company. I had to fly back and forth between London and Budapest. I had to cast the film. I had to find the locations and build the sets. You know, this was like eight weeks. The clock is ticking. I didn't have time to think about publicity or about web presence or any kind of material. So when the film was finished and I finished it at Goldcrest in London, Nobody had really thought about how to distribute the film, how, you know, uh, how to do posters or marketing. And the financiers, who put the, guy, the financiers who put up the money said, we've financed your film. Over to you, John. <laughs> well, I didn't have any money. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any uh, uh, promotional uh, material, whatever, whatever. So uh, it was kind of an odd situation. You have a 100% financed film that cost £4 million, but there's no money to promote it. So the question was how to get it released, and I really was focused on the States. And um, this guy, Neil Friedman, who was distributing it, went about it in a really smart way, spending as little money of his own as possible, making the most money his company has ever made on a film. No, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic story. It's, it almost it, it sounds like it, 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 it turns a film into like a touring band, doesn't it? You know, like where... where exactly, exactly, and that was what was because um, there was so much goodwill towards the film from, let's say... Two-thirds of the film festivals that were used were Jewish film festivals, and okay. the other third weren't, were normal film festivals. Mm -hmm. 
but you know, um, we had the opening night in San Francisco. We had um, uh, the closing night in Atlanta. We had uh, um, uh, Boston was terrific. So um, it was really um, so there was such goodwill towards the film. And of course, a British film that does get released in America is normally has a high quality because only the best British films go to America. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of goodwill towards a British film. Uh, and of course, the issues with, uh, a, you know, with Trump saying we must stop Muslims from coming to America. We must, you know, have a, a um, immigration control and stop anybody from a Muslim country entering America. Here was a film about a mu- Muslim mother and son asylum seekers who were being helped by an old Jew. Mm. So this was really uh, a very progressive uh, um, message for America coupled with the cannabis angle, which appealed to a lot of young people. So um, in that sense, it was, uh, it was good timing. Well, look, congratulations for the, for the success of the film. It's great, it's great to hear uh, that, that it's possible to take a British film to the States and, uh, and get people's bums on seats to watch it. Uh, and it just takes me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Yeah, terrific speaking with you. Thank you. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.